0: Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out-of-money conversations. Join me And hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money podcast. Today, I have Ben Hakamiya with me of Illuminate Wealth Management. Now, Ben is one of those guys, when you meet him, you just fall in love with him immediately. At least I did. I had a bro crush immediately. I'm owning it on air now. And it happened because we were introduced through a dear mutual friend of both of ours, Danielle, who was actually a podcast guest earlier in this uh, podcast series. So I'll have to link to Danielle to give her credit. But Ben has a deep passion for working with people around their personal finances. And he's not your ordinary financial planner that just wants to look at your taxes and your insurance and your investing. He really wants to know, who are these people that I'm working with at a deep deep level and so today we're going to talk about his journey of being a financial planner those common road bumps and hurdles that he sees couples struggling with and then some of the favorite things he likes to do to help them move forward he also has a surprise philosophy that he's going to share with us somewhere in the show so stay tuned ben welcome to the show Thanks, Ed. I
1: do have to... I'm, I'm laughing because Danielle, um, who you mentioned, I've talked to her since you and I met a few months ago, and um, she commented that both of us kind of have a bro crush, so it, it goes both ways there. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks, Danielle.
0: Yes, Yeah. Shout out to Danielle and having a good friend that can uh, do some matchmaking for, yeah, friends, great friendships. since right. So, so Ben... How in the world did you become a financial planner? Tell me about that story. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It um, it was something that I just kind of fell into, honestly. Um, I knew I wanted to do something business, economic, something related. Went to college actually pre-med, though, uh, because my my father was a surgeon and I said, Oh, that's, a, that sounds great. Let's do that. And then I went to the OR with him and, and realized that is not what I want to do at all. And I did not want to be involved with that. Um, you know, other than the anesthesiologist making jokes, otherwise I hated that experience. And so, um, one thing that my father did say to me was if I wasn't in medicine, I would be interested in personal finance. Maybe you should talk to my guy. And so I talked to his advisor and, uh, Got an internship through that conversation, and it just went from there. and And I worked for a fee only firm um, for, I guess, including the internship, uh, about twelve years, and was a, a partner there. And then launched Illuminate Wealth Management um, January first, twenty twenty. So right before COVID hit. So uh, we we crossed our three year full three year mark in year four, and uh, things have just been been great from there.
0: So. The son of a surgeon says, mm, "No thanks, Dad. I'm I'm not interested." He says, "Okay, son, go talk to my guy." And you're like, "Okay, sure." Then you go talk to him, land an internship, worked there for twelve years, and you said it's a fee only firm. Now, not all my listeners are going to know what the heck does that mean and why mm-hmm. is that important.
1: Yeah, there's there's a couple key kind of industry related terms that I think are important. So one is is how are people paid and it? it's fee only fee based commission based are all different terms. Um you hear fee only and you think that's the same as fee based, at least that's what I think most people would would hear fee only is I'm not selling you any products. I'm truly just getting paid by my clients. I don't have any back end deals with a mutual fund company to sell you their mutual fund. That I think is the least amount of conflicts of interest, you can't completely get rid of it. But when you're working with a client, fee only, I think, matters a lot. The second term that I think is very important that doesn't always go hand in hand is fiduciary. And fiduciary is I'm truly putting my client's interest number one over everything else, including my own interest. Um, Most of the industry is suitability standard, which just says I have to be able to have my compliance department justify that I did good enough But if I sell you something that you kind of sort of needed, but it gives me a big commission or a big payout, um, I can do that. If I'm a suitability standard, fiduciary is important. So for me, I think both fee-only and fiduciary is vitally important.
0: They're a powerful combination when they come together. Mm
1: -hmm. And they're not not the end-all, be-all, right? Just because you're fee-only, just because you're fiduciary does not mean you're great or you're qualified or you're going to give great advice, but it helps weed out a lot of bad actors, I think.
0: Hmm. So, you know, I think as people are thinking about finding a really good financial planner, what are those attributes beyond feeling and fiduciary that really move the needle on a client's success mm-hmm. in working with a financial planner?
1: Yeah, I, I think, um, So I actually hate the term both financial advisor, financial planner. I hate to tell people that that's what I do because they think they know what I do, and um, part of that is because there's not a lot of regulation around it. So you can you can just call yourself a financial advisor when you have no qualifications. And what's interesting is I I, my son has uh, three friends whose parents are also, quote, financial advisors, and I know their firms, and we do wildly different things. That doesn't mean they're bad. It just means the client that I'm going to work with is going to have a different experience than the client they're going to work with. So I think an important piece is just to understand, just because the title's the same, or the firm is a wealth management firm or a financial planning firm, your experience can be wildly different depending on who you're working with who they work with, how they approach things. So there's, there's different options for different people. Some want to have a big nationwide firm that they, they see a, an ad, a Bowl ad for, and that gives a lot of comfort that, you know, it's good enough, um, that there's some authority that's there and there's nothing wrong with that because if the most important thing with finance is in my opinion, get out of your own head and, uh, Let's not have all these roadblocks in the way, and so if if working with a big nationwide firm gives you the freedom to th- to not worry about money, then great, go do that. O- others will take a solo you know a solo approach that's very much about I have a small number of clients. I get to know them intimately and very um, everything that that makes them tick and all that. A lot of the industry, the solos um, can't compete on certain things with the bigger firms because they don't have the scale. They don't have the, um, you know, the, the industry doesn't really want to give you access to the best software if you don't have a lot of money to pay them. (laughs) And so, um, so there's limits to both kind of how we approach it. And what we're looking for is can we mesh those two together? Right? So can, can the people I work with, I ask a lot of deep questions that a financial therapist um, would probably ask on what actually makes them tick? Where? What's the underlying reason that you care about money? What What in your past led to this? What does um, what your relationship look like with money? Not just, here's what the spreadsheet says to do and I'm going to go and, and put you in this product or something else. Thanks for letting me ramble, ramble there.
0: Well, there's a lot there. And I think it's it's easy to take for granted known terms to you and I. And we want to be inviting people on the journey of, engaging in top quality financial planning. And Ben and I have a, a very closely aligned. And I'm sure we, if we talk long enough, we would find our differences. That's okay. Uh, but we just want to help people know that there are fee-only fiduciary level financial planners out there and how they see the world is different than others. And that doesn't make the other people bad people per se. It just means the way they're getting compensated in their incentive structure is different. And we want to know that as, as being an informed consumer, just like you know, I think what's the term, Ben? I can't think about it. in medicine. Like, you got to be your own self advocate. Like, yeah, the mm-hmm. doctor is responsible right. for treating you ethically and professionally and responsibly, but you have a responsibility as a consumer of medicine also to be informed in what you're doing. So that's that's the conversation from my perspective. Um, right,
1: and we could spend all day talking about is that right? Is that fair? But it's the reality of the situation, right? Where there is there is an information gap between the people you're going to talk to. Uh, as a consumer and you and but you need to be prepared to know the questions to ask the types of of things and it and again just kind of getting full circle on what we started this conversation if you can start with how are, tell me all the ways you're paid you or your firm i mean that that helps expose a lot of conflicts of interest and
0: stuff so you're just saying even very at that pr- most practical level when you're interviewing financial planners is ask about how do you get paid what are the different ways that you get paid absolutely
1: Um, and again, it doesn't mean that it's bad if, if there's multiple ways, but I was an economics major. The number one thing I took away from my degree was incentives matter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Hello. (laughs) And so,
1: and that's in everything with economics, like it all comes down to what, who's incentivized to do what it's going to, it's going to have a a piece of that. And so even if you have the best mindset as a financial planner, if your incentive is to push product, you're gonna be more likely to push that product.
0: Yeah. Uh, yes. Yeah. I, th- I mean, for me, I'm I'm there obviously, and I think that's that's where a lot of people are. And so, once people on board and they've decided to work with you, you said you asked some deep questions. So, can we try a fun little exercise? This puts you on the spot. Oh man. <laughs> okay. But can you ask me like one or two of your kind of getting to know your clients' questions and let me respond so people can really kind of hear what these conversations sound like? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, we can do that. Um, I'll I'll preface it by saying I actually really prefer working with couples, and I always ask the spouse that seems less interested first. And the biggest reason that I found is I think couples don't talk about money as much as they should. Uh, And and, yeah, obviously you're right there with me. And the one that doesn't want to be there probably has less interest. Mm -hmm. And I, I care about them as a couple and as clients as two individuals that if I just focus on the one that seems really excited to be there, then they're unintentionally going to uh, take over the meeting. So I wish your spouse was here.
0: (laughs) So no, this is great. I love this. And I love that this is what people will be hearing because I, I share a similar philosophy and it's, it's interesting because you know, yeah. So your starting point is if I was a new prospect and I showed up even today and saying, Hey Ben, I want to hire you as my financial planner. You would ask me, Ed, well, where's your wife? Absolutely. We, I, uh, I don't require
1: both spouses to be at every meeting. I do require for what we call our discovery meeting that both are there. And I will reschedule if there's a conflict and they don't make it happen because it is vitally important. I've I've heard another financial planner talk about this, and, and I think it's a valuable concept. The person I'm sitting across the table from, I, I actually have for each individual, I have two sets of clients. I have the ones that as they exist today, I have them also each individually and as a couple. So there's three. And then I also have them as a couple and individually 25 years from now that I hope to still be sitting across the table from. And so I have in a couple, I have six different clients at the same time that we're working with and I need them all to be there.
0: <laughs> I, I, you know, it's so funny, and I just love hearing this because this is that's a big concept in couples therapy world. Is you know the client is the couple, not the individual. And so yes, you're working with each individual, but the relationship is what you're working with. And that's kind of what I hear you saying is like, yeah, I, I care about each individual, but I also care about the relationship they have with each other. And then this is the piece that's. I think really pertinent to financial planning is that future self. And there's a lot of, I don't know if there's a lot, but there's some research out there that shows that when couples and individuals have a future self that they're working for, their accumulation and savings rate is significantly higher and their end net worth ends up much higher. And so if you don't have both people with that shared vision for the future, yeah, it's it's a big problem. So right, so, so anyway, I, I didn't answer your question, which is ask you
1: some questions, but um, but I I think that's a very important part, and actually, why I prefer to work with couples than just individuals, because the relational aspect between a couple, married or not, but if if you have a joint future planned, money can be the biggest stressor in your life, and if we can help with that. Um, to alleviate that pressure, I think it's huge. You did say something there that I want to clarify. My measurement of success for that couple yeah. has nothing to do with their future net worth.
0: Oh, and, shock, shock and awe. Wait, a
1: financial planner <laughs> says what? <laughs> I know. Um, and that gets to our client questions, but it's all about have they, have they, used money as a tool to reach fulfillment and reach, reach whatever they want in their life. That's success. And so if if that means they don't save much at all, but they're financially free from a, from a financial stress, I think that is a win all day, every day, if that's what fits their life. Another couple may say, I need... 20 million dollars so that I can go and impact this cause that I really care about or whatever that is um, that's great but it's not the numbers on the net worth
0: statement so this okay so we're we're going to side rail on this because we just got to go there we
1: right? do this all the time ed yeah. <laughs> we yes, talk
0: this is how it goes so listeners just if you like fragmented conversations that are trying to connect lots of pieces you're going to love this and if you want a linear conversation this is not the podcast for you. Sorry.
1: Um, There's a reason I don't go into client meetings with an agenda that I give a client because I go in different <laughs> order depending
0: on the situation. I appreciate you naming that, too, because that's been a funny thing as I've been coming back into the financial planning field is like agendas are like the gospel. Like if you don't have a business agenda for your financial plan, like you're 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 breaking your heretic. And right. so just the fact that you're naming, like, I don't know. I don't have agendas. Like I know what needs to be covered and I'll move around. I have bullet points that I know about and the client doesn't
1: so that I can go in whatever order the conversation takes us. Yes. So go ahead. Sorry about
0: that little sidebar. So, so we already established starting a new client prospect. You wouldn't be meeting with me just alone. So I don't get any of those questions shut down because your wife's <laughs> not here. I uh, still ask you a few, but. Okay. All right. But. You're really talking about philosophy here, and it sounds like the orientation is about what is the couple's philosophy around money, not what is Ben's or Illuminate Wealth Management's philosophy, right? Because there's, I think there's s- some planning firms that have their philosophy on money, and they want their clients to adhere to that. Absolutely, right, and it's for sure. And so it sounds like it's almost inverted for you. I mean, certainly you have. Some guiding principles about how you help people manage investments, blah, blah, blah. But if a couple says, no, accumulation is not really our biggest goal. Our biggest goal is around living a high quality life and spending most of our money. Okay, great. Let's talk about how that's going to work for you and figure it out.
1: Absolutely. Well, yeah. And I would say kind of spoiler alert, I don't think anyone's actual goal is to accumulate money. I think they don't know how to articulate what they want in any other way. And so they've been taught that that's, that's what they're, that's what the safety and security side of them is saying is I need to have X number of dollars, but it's deeper than that.
0: So, yeah, of course my brain is getting blown up. Sorry. No, this is good. I mean, I love you naming these things because this is what I was anticipating would come out that hasn't fully come out even in some of our conversations, but Couples don't, their goal is not actually to accumulate wealth. And as I heard you say that, I felt the the pin prick my own balloon a bit because I am, I have that accumulation mindset, Mm -hmm. but what you're pointing to is there's actually something beneath that desire to accumulate. So, walk us into that a little bit more.
1: Right. For sure. So, uh, and this relates to the client question. So one, one kind of concept we talk to clients and the couples about, and I ask each to answer individually is how you generally find yourself thinking about money is money and wealth something that gives you security. If you have it and insecure, if you don't have it, is it something that if you have money, now you're vulnerable to losing it, being attacked that you're a target for things, um, or is money an opportunity? And, I would say majority of clients I work with having money or accumulating money is, is a combination of security and opportunity.
0: Uh-huh. And
1: I can tell without asking a risk tolerance questionnaire, which is a very industry related term, I can tell based on the answers to those questions where they're going to score because if it's about security, that's a risk tolerance question. It's <laughs> I want to feel safe. And on the flip side is if you answer about opportunity and I get to do things and whatever else that leads us down the road of conversations on what you can do. And I, and just to kind of point out, so my wife and I have actually used Danielle Sircamp, who you mentioned who introduced us, we used her as a, as our financial planner. And the reason we did that was the same reason I like to work with couples is to help navigate the just inherent conflict of two people <laughs> trying to manage this on themselves. Right. And my wife When she would answer those types of questions, she's 100% on the security side. If we don't have six figures in our bank account in cash earning 0%, she doesn't feel safe. I look at that as the opportunity entrepreneur and say, that is the biggest waste of money ever because look of all the things you could do with that. And There's not a right or wrong answer there, but there's a lot there to navigate and that leads to if she's the client by herself, it's going to be a very different plan than if I'm the client by myself, which is a very, very different plan than the the two of us together as a couple of trying to navigate that
0: as we go through. So wait, Ben, hold on a second. You're a financial planner and you went to work with a financial planner. Now, Absolutely. I'm there, but walk us back through that a little bit again of the logic because there's going to be some listeners that are financial planners to this podcast and maybe they've heard this concept. Maybe they haven't. So help them with the head scratch. What? Right.
1: So, you know, I'll, I'll relate back to, to my father, right? He was an oral surgeon and he's since retired, but he shouldn't be taking out his own teeth period. <laughs> right. Yeah, like right. it shouldn't happen. It doesn't matter that he knows how to do it. It's, there 's some blind spots he can 't see his mouth as well as someone who 's a third party out there there 's some things that are there that he shouldn 't be doing to himself not and it 's not a reflection on his ability and so taking that, which I had to get to that point myself, was to say me seeking out help is not because i don 't know enough it 's not a reflection on me as a as an expert or as a financial planner it 's more about actually understanding. A money is emotional for 100% of people.
0: <laughs> Wait, I'm not the exception because I really thought you I was like, the exception. You are not the exception at all. And I mean, so, yeah. <laughs> and so given that,
1: emotions come with their own baggage and we don't think logically all the time and we go through periods of time where you're more emotional about money than times when you're not. And when you add to it that I don't know another couple as opposite as as my wife and I are (laughs) and still work somehow. (laughs) Um, There's a lot to navigate there. And what happened in our relationship was because I knew the answers, the, the spreadsheet answers, my wife felt like she had to defer to me, but was uncomfortable with the answers because I was not fully taking her psychology into account. And I was saying, I recognize that you're worried about this. Just trust me. It's going to be okay. And that was not solving the actual problem, which is we are two people with two sets of goals with our own sets of emotional baggage and our own ways we think about money and our own way of thinking about goals. We need someone, a third party that is a safe place to have that conversation, a safe place that my wife has the advocate to who can argue with me on the, on the number side, uh, and say, you're not wrong, but here's another way to look at it. And, and from an expertise, we're on the same page. And then also, um, we could just, we could be mad at Danielle together instead of at
0: each other. Right. Right. Oh, I like that. (laughs) So, and I think, you know, that as I was listening to you to use that analogy of your dad being the oral surgeon and I thought naturally like, well, of course he can't use his hands and pull out his own teeth and do the oral surgery. But what I heard you say is like, Part of being an oral surgeon is being outside of the mouth and being a look, look at it, and there's that perspective. Absolutely, perspective taking, uh, and that's you know one of the limits of our own psychology is we don't get full pers- outsiders perspective on ourselves. No matter how self reflective or insightful we become, like we, we still can't fully get outside and look back at ourselves. So, so you highlighted opportunity, security, and vulnerability. Yes, is what are the kind of three big buckets that. Honey. Three big buckets. And, and I think
1: it's a spectrum and you navigate between that throughout your life and different experiences, change it. But a lot of it I think is, and I'm not trained as much in the therapy side as you are, um, but uh, I do have a sister who's also a, a licensed clinical therapist. And so we talk about psychology and I've always been interested. So I I think it's very formative on your first experience with money. And that uh, gets to the other question. We ask, what is your earliest memory of money? Tell me about that. How did you feel we go into those questions when you're a prospect? That's what I want to hear and what's interesting is I don't think I've ever had a couple who's had that conversation with each other on what their earliest memory of money was.
0: No, I don't think they like we do, that's not common knowledge. It's not something that you would bump up against and know like you need to ask right but that's right. part of, part of the, my journey is helping couples hmm. We have this process of discovery about, like, uh, how do I say, it? when you start puberty and it's like, oh, I want to hold a girl's hand, then I want to kiss, <laughs> then I want a French kiss, and we'll stop where the rest of the story goes after that. Um, the show is somewhat PG. <laughs> but, right, like, there's this delve, you're slowly learning how to be physically intimate with someone along the way. Right. And And there's enough kind of social messages that you kind of start piecing it all together. But there's not really a similar process, I guess, per se, for figuring out how to do money together well. Not at all. Not at all. Um, And I I do
1: want to bring that up. I want to point out, I I thought you had a really good episode recently with uh, Kalen Dillon uh, back, I think, December of 22. And um, I know Kalen a little bit. We've talked actually through Danielle uh, as well. Danielle is our connector for everything. I've actually sent that podcast out to a few clients who are talking about prenups and they're about to get married and i think concepts on on that that's the same thing she talked about of how do you how do you have those safe conversations without and it's just about information it's about getting financially intimate and not to cause problems right and um there is nothing there is no playbook that you're ever taught and arguably no one's really good at it on their own I can't – it's not like you're going to learn from your parents how to be financially independent.
0: <laughs> most of us like, have never seen our parents sit down, look exactly. each other in the eye and say, man, I'm just so glad for how we spend money together.
1: Exactly. <laughs> right. The only time you ever hear parents talk about money is when they're complaining about someone spent too much on something. Right? <laughs> for so many of us. <laughs> so like, I can't imagine another normal scenario for most people.
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny, I had a reporter actually ask me about, well, why do people spend so much more money on vacation? And, you know, I, I was thinking through it and trying to respond, and then I came to the end, I said, well, I'd be remiss as a family therapist not to name that you, we all have family vacation stories, and they go one of two ways. You go on vacation, and you really experience mom or dad being locked down on the budget because they're just so panicked about going over the budget. Yep. Or they go that swing the pendulum to the other side and say, oh, what the hell, we're on vacation. Let let go and let live. (laughs) Let's have a great time. And then, like that, leaves an impression for you about like, you know, if you're on that easy spending side, maybe you grew up under the financial uh, tyrant or control freak, Mm -hmm. and so you're like, I'm not having that experience. I'm going to spend whatever I want. So, we, you know, in therapy world, we talk a lot about polarities, like the extremes on either end, like complete rigidity around how much money we're going to spend on vacation or complete carte blanche, whatever we want. And both of those pro- usually end up problematic, at least for one, if not multiple people.
1: Oh, for sure. <laughs> and I, I think it relates back to that that concept I mentioned also before on just the client today and the client twenty five years from now. I think most people fall into one to two camps on who they care about and who they're worried about. And there's a balance for everything, right? It, it's so easy psychologically in any concept to go to the to the poll, <laughs> you know, to the, the polls. And we want to be, try to balance in the middle on anything.
0: Well, and would you say even in financial planning, one of the things that I've been enjoying is really going back and working through goals with clients and thinking about, we're not just planning for today's goals and retirement goals, but there's the intermediate life goals, right? And we're trying to figure out how to use your household income, and this is an economics term, maximize your opportunity, Right. And so we're trying to help you enjoy today, be able to enjoy vacation this summer, enjoy a bigger trip three years from now, do the big house update 10 years from now, and retire in 25 years. Oh, and oh, and by the way, let's throw in funding the kids' college at least partially somewhere.
1: And maybe paying for your parents' health needs also.
0: Right, you, parents' health needs, parents' aging cares, uh, maybe a sister or brother that's a little more wayward. You know, that's a whole another topic that we can talk about. Right, but, but there's just so much.
1: Yes. So we, and we, um, you made me think of this, you know, we talk in the industry, industry terms, you go to conferences, you hear about how do we smooth out your, your tax rate for your whole life? You know, how do you do things like Roth conversions and things to smooth out your tax rate? And really what I think we're also doing, and we don't do enough of in the financial planning world is smooth out your happiness, smooth out the way that money helps impact your life, your fulfillment. Um, there's still value in, having things that delight you, that, you know, you have the peaks of the trip that you look forward to and and then you go on. But we don't want to just have it all about today or all about when you're 90 years old. We want to smooth out your, how your money can help bring you fulfillment.
0: So what, and this kind of goes right to life philosophy very quickly is how do we kind of build pleasure throughout the whole arc of life? Mm-hmm. Instead of, you know, some people have a philosophy of self-denial now for future pleasure. Right. And Or the opposite of all pleasure now and who cares about the future. Right. And, and both of those are ex- extremes from my perspective. And anybody that's listening that's lived in any of those philosophies, looked. I've had taste of, I've lived both of those. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there's a little bit of takes one to know one here. Um, but it's. It seems as I'm maturing and growing that kind of a, a healthy, fulfilling life is more balanced and spread out over short, intermediate, and long term goals and, and having pleasure. And, you know, even Ben, I'm rab- rambling here a little bit trying to find my point, but another life philosophy orientation piece is around am I s- pursuing a life of pleasure, meaning, and joy, or self deprivation and self sacrifice? Right. And, and I've been, i heavy on the self-sacrifice duty side of things and missing some of the, the pleasure, like that's the, the, the bigger yeah. meaning. Well, and we, we could spend a whole,
1: you know, four hours talking through, because I know you've, you've gone on your own journey and you and I have talked about both like identity and purpose. And, and just when you and I have talked, um, there's, there's so many different concepts and and different things you could go, go down. Um, and I, I think it does lead, just kind of this general conversation leads to something I came across recently at uh, a leadership group I'm a part of. They had a consultant come in and they this discussed um, a Japanese concept called Ikigai. And it is... It, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, Um, but it's the idea of this of just a balanced, fulfilling life, and you want to get to this point. And so, uh, you know, imagine a Venn diagram of four different circles, and you want to meet in the middle. So, it's what do you love to do? What are you good at? What can you get paid to do? And what does the world need? And in my own reflection, I I can look back at points in in my career where I focused on what am I good at and what can I get paid to do? And it happens to be what the world needs, but I didn't know that right away. I just got paid well to do it right early on. And that, like, that's the focus. And I didn't even think about what do I love? What do I love to do on this? And I'm still on this journey of trying to figure out how do we meet in the middle on that? And I also think it's very relevant to clients that are, whether it's early retirement or retiring, even if you found that in your career, if you retire and now your identity changes or, or where you are, and now you're like, well, what am I good at even at this point? And what, maybe you don't need to get paid to do, but how can I positively impact the world? And I see so many people lose their purpose when they retire because they didn't have the bigger mindset on um, on what all of it was about. And that gets to, if if we can help people, I'm, I'm not going to say I can help people find that for them, but if we can help open the door to say, think bigger than just this conversation about how much do I save to my 401k, right? and we can think in a broader terms of, okay, let's talk about when you retire, what are you going to do every day? What is, what is going to bring you fulfillment? How how is this transition going to happen and actually help people through that transition to retirement process? As just one example, we can help balance their kind of long term fulfillment and long term life and money's just a tool to help make that happen.
0: So, so don't rush through that fa- phrase because that's a phrase that comes up in the planning community a decent bit. So go back and say that last phrase again. Money. I don't is, know which one
1: I said. Money is just a tool to help reach your goals to help reach fulfillment.
0: Okay. Right. So it's. It's a philosophy around money. Money is a tool. 100%. I,
1: and I have found clients, and they've just chosen not to work with me, or prospective clients that don't want to work with me because their questions are all around, how do I get the most? And I don't believe, and part of this is just a core belief that I have, I don't believe they will ever be fulfilled.
0: It's funny, I'm kind of flashing back to an old financial planner that I used to work with, and he very much shared shared the same thing. And I think I, you know, at that place and in the journey, I really didn't like hearing that. (laughs) Okay, you have to be ready for it. (laughs) And, you know, let's be honest, I, I, I'm more open to hearing it now. And there's a part of me that still hates hearing it. And that's just reflective of where I'm at in my journey, right? And I think I share that to say, like, As we're on this journey with money, we're getting presented with new truths and new ways of understanding ourselves, life, and other people. And some of those things we're ready to hear and they'll sprout now, and some of them are being seeds planted for days, weeks, if not years, maybe decades down the road. And that's really, I think, what's exciting about being a financial planner. And one of the things you said earlier is, I'm not just thinking about the couple that's showing up here today. I'm thinking about the couple that's gonna, who they're gonna be in 25 years, and I want to be still sitting across the table from them and I'm holding them in mind and meeting them on that journey. Not as like, I have all the answers figured out, but I'm more going to facilitate asking questions. And, and that's something I really appreciate about you, Ben, is you're clearly in your own process of asking questions, allowing those questions to update your understanding of self and others. And then new questions emerge And it's iterative. And I think that that's where we really grow ultimately into wisdom in the long run.
1: Yeah, it's – I think it is so easy for financial planners, and I've been there, and I still sometimes go there, of thinking, you know, the spreadsheet says X, and we – we have the precise answer, and we not that we can you know predict the future, but we have these probabilities, and we can get you right, and we have the right answer and I think that is a that is every financial planner that's an immature stage they are at where they think that way, and I think it's part of the process of learning and growing and developing as as a good financial planner working with clients is recognizing that's step 1 which is have good data and have good numbers and good outputs right but that's just step 1 <laughs> and there's a whole lot more that goes into it and we we don't know we say we don't know the future but we act like we do sometimes right. yeah. and yeah. um and I think approaching every Client, both the couple as a couple and each individual and everyone in every one that we work with, each one's got their own story. They've got their own goals, their own way. They view what this, what this projection means to them. And
0: <laughs> wait, hold on slow down. I got to interrupt. Okay. Cause that's like a really important nugget that gets taken for granted. What does this projection mean to you?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. And I would say most of my career,
0: I was like, well, here's the number, right? Like this, <laughs> <laughs> right? This okay. What, what? There's it's nothing here. to interpret here, right? I mean, or it, but or it's your given meaning like, "Oh, this number says you're financially secure." So, exactly. I'm just assuming that you feel financially secure, but in it may not be true. I had a client where their probability of success was 80%. Okay. And if you know financial planning software, 80% probability of success, especially in your mid-30s, is pretty awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> And yet, like knowing the client and knowing some other pieces, there's other anxieties that don't allow them. They're not at a place of congruence between like, yeah, I have a high likelihood of success. And so what are these numbers? So I guess for listeners, if you're working with your financial planner, one of the things you want to be sensitive to is, are they asking me about my reaction and my interpretation to the information that's being presented to me? because planners all have their bias and assumption about what certain things mean. I mean, I, right. I'm more, I'm risk-taking and our financial planners, I, my perception is more risk averse and my wife is a little more risk averse. And so like when I'm talking about like, well, let's use some of the equity in the house to invest in a rental property <laughs> right, right, to do a VRBO because our family will benefit. And, and they're both looking at me like I got like 12 snake heads and I'm thinking like, man, I've done the due diligence. I've done the reading. I've started to do the Don't you see the numbers? Like, don't you on. see the numbers? This makes sense. Why do you, you're not, what, right? But it's totally coming from that opportunity lens for me versus security. And so.
1: So, uh, yeah, there's a few things that jump out there. So one, I mean, one very meaningful experience for me was when I got a financial planner because I I didn't realize up to that point how vulnerable I was expecting my clients to be oh. until I had to be vulnerable. <laughs> and this is somebody that I knew, we've been in a peer group for 10 years, and maybe at the time it was 5 years and so I knew her really well and knew we could get along and and yet that was just, you know, scary and vulnerable and also to hear from the client perspective the conversation that my wife on how she experienced the projections versus how I experienced them and how they're different. Um so that was one big thing that I don't know. It's just out there. The other, and getting to, okay, what do you do? Like, what's an actual thing you should do? What do you look at your financial planner? And it goes back to something you said before, which is we kind of have our own biases. One downside to fee-only planners as an example is most are almost allergic to the concept of an, of an annuity. And if you talk to your financial planner and, and you could just do it, if you have a fee on the advisor, just say, what are your thoughts on annuities? I guarantee they're going to – their initial reaction is <laughs> going to be disgust. Ill, it's no. going to be yeah, – yeah, yeah. I can't do it. It just And yet, if a client has – if their response – if their reaction to the 80% success is negative and if they're 100% on the security side, that that's what motivates them – there's a really good opportunity to have a small amount of an annuity that just helps smooth some things out. It's nice. And so um, I guess the question how that leads to what do you do with your financial planner is sure. Ask what they think about annuities because if they're hundred percent all in, then they're selling you something. Um,
0: <laughs> so there's a balance here right, right in the right. middle.
1: Um, right. Right. But it nothing's one size fits all. And we live in this world where we want the life hack. We want the just do this one thing and it's over and it's easy and it's just messy. All the
0: You mean there's not a magical key out there, Ben? There's not at all. And I mean, I've uh, been looking for about 16 years plus and I've absolutely. not found it.
1: <laughs> it's like, not out there. Uh, Sorry. It's not out there. And there's a reason. So there's, there's a client that I work with. He's 97 and my business partner worked with him before I did. And so we have almost 40 years history with this client and there's a reason he's still working with me. And it's, it's not because I'm so good. It's because there isn't an easy answer that just you're done and you never have to think about it again. There are ongoing things that happen throughout your life and life is messy, and life changes, and
0: there's no, just check the box. I want to confess this one to you, Ben. Um, that word, the words financial freedom make me angry now. <laughs> okay, okay, cool. And it's, it's because it's my interpretation of financial freedom, and I'm, if I interpret it this way, I'm not the only one. I've, I've come to appreciate that too. That doesn't mean everyone interprets it this way, but I sincerely thought financial freedom meant I would never have to think about money again. It's fair. And I think that's a a fair thought, (laughs) right? Like it's not a completely illogical thought, but the reality is, and I think what you're highlighting is we have a lifetime relationship with money and we have a lifetime of money decisions that we will need to make and life decisions that have a money element to them. Mm -hmm. And so having that planner, that person, and I think that's really part of the value of financial planners is they get to live 50, 100, 200 different financial lives just by their client work on top of all the things that they read and talk with other planners. So, their perspective on money is as robust as it possibly can be in our society. Absolutely. But the rest of us that are not financial planners live one financial life and use a few frames of reference from mom, dad, brother, sister, kids. And... Next door neighbor, <laughs> next door neighbor, a little bit, and then you know you pick your favorite media outlet, yeah. right? So like the number of data points that a financial planner has and vantage points they can see it is is just much larger, not because they're better, but because that's just the nature of the work and the job, and that's something I think most people wouldn't naturally think about. And this is is a little bit of tooting our own horn, but it's also true of all professions. Mm -hmm. Right. Like my son, my son literally just broke his wrist. And I showed up and the, you know, the x ray tech's like, well, what do you want me to x ray? And I'm like, whatever you think needs to be x rayed. (laughs) Right. Uh, Right. I came here. You know, the doctor's like, how do you want, what do you want me to do with the treatment? Uh, I don't know. And then he said, oh, by the way, I'm going to treat six of these today. I'm like, great. I'm never going to treat one of these in my life. Exactly. And he said, in four weeks, it'll be 100% healed. Uh, Okay. Great. Right. So, we develop expertise in particular areas that we focus study and energy around. And that's our gift back to the world, at least from my perspective. And Ben, I think that's the way you live too. It's like, this is my gift back to the world is to bring this financial perspective and help people because money is a big deal. I think I know things about my clients that other
1: than their spouse, because I've asked it in front of their spouse, other than their spouse, they've never shared with anybody. And it is, I feel such a responsibility on that. um, That's, and I take it super seriously on just like how vulnerable people are, if we're really going to do it and how much it impacts. And that motivates us to get better every single day and do better tomorrow than we did today, because I need to be doing that or we've betrayed the trust our clients are giving us. And so um, it is so, I get emotional thinking about how emotional our clients are with us, I mean, I really do so uh, and i'm I'm very blessed to be in that situation that I fell into this industry, and every day I get to experience that with clients, so I think there's a lot here that we could dive into uh next time oh, <laughs> so. there there will be
0: plenty more next time. <laughs> Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, Please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. I have Ben Hakama with me Eliminate Wealth Management. Now, Ben and I have been getting to know each other recently, and we have so much fun talking. He has this concept that he wants to share called the six stages of financial independence. I have no idea what his framework is, but... If you know me, you know that I love a developmental sequence, meaning like, how do people actually grow and change? What are the phases they go through? So Ben, welcome to the show, and I can't wait to hear about the six stages of financial independence.
1: Ed, uh, happy to be back. I know that we'll start with that, and who knows where we'll go after (laughs) the six stages.
0: Oh, well, I have my own ideas about stages of financial independence and some other words that I... like so we'll have fun with this conversation I think listeners hopefully what you will pick up from this is talking about money thinking about money can actually be really fun and Ben if there's one thing that he's good at is like having a good time with a conversation so uh, Ben for the listeners that don't don't know you don't know why you would be on this podcast can you tell people a little bit about yourself and what you do
1: Absolutely. So I'm a certified financial planner in the Chicago area. Uh, started my company, Illuminate Wealth Management, January first, twenty twenty, right before COVID, and uh, have really had fun building that up during a lot of interesting times that we've all experienced. But uh, work with a smaller number of clients than I think most financial planners, and that's intentional. We want to get really deep with our clients and and have a good relationship with them, and uh, focus on things not just what's the spreadsheet say, but uh, a lot more on you know what motivates you. You know what a big concept we talk about is what is enough and and what your why is.
0: What is enough and what is your why? Those are no small questions, my friend. I'm sure that gets wrapped up in about five minutes of conversation, doesn't it?
1: That's right. Well, uh, and it actually leads right into our six stages because that, that really, you know, when people think about financial independence, when people think about money, a lot of people focus on the numbers, they focus on the spreadsheet, they focus on what they think their numbers should be. But all of those things, you know, money's just a tool. And it's just a tool towards whatever you see your life, whatever you envision, whatever your fulfillment could be, you know, whatever that is. It's just a tool to go that direction. And I think a lot of people get wrapped up in the numbers and forget why they're doing what they're doing.
0: Yes. Now, before we go fast forward and too far into this, now, for any of you that are math nerds, you heard Ben said he founded his firm in 2020. What he didn't say is the years of experience he brings before starting his own firm so ben can you just highlight like the journey before illuminate wealth management so people can see like what why i'm doing this is mm, we're all on this money journey and the ideas that ben's come to are not things he's come to in the last two years these are things that you've been reflecting on (laughs) thinking on refining for a lot longer than that so
1: you want some more? You want some more background? Okay, cool. So, um, I think everybody's money story starts actually how they grew up and their relationship with money, both them personally first memories of money, and then also with their family. And um, you know, for me, that was impactful by how my parents approached money and how they talked about money. And and um, you know, my parents were definitely in the school of thought of very diligent savers, don't take a lot of debt. And definitely, we talk to clients about security and opportunity, definitely on the security side of things. What was interesting is because I never worried about money growing up. My dad was a, a doctor, and they were good with their money. So yeah. I, as a child, didn't worry about it. I actually skipped the security, and went straight to opportunity, and so that's uh, it, and a whole interesting thing. Which your you know yeah, financial therapist it, over there is like jumping into, right? <laughs> yeah, but, let's um, process.
0: Not actually. No, just kidding. <laughs>
1: Yeah, exactly. But then a freshman year of college I got connected with my dad's financial my parents' financial advisor and um through 3 years of an internship and then working for over 10 years at that firm and was a minority partner there's so many things just developing my own uh, understanding of money and my own limitations that you know you're an arrogant 22-year-old you think you know everything as everyone at 22 thinks they do and um and they've learned a lot both from clients and just my own money experiences over the last 15 years or so.
0: Yes. So that puts you well into your eighties psychologically, at least. No, I'm just sure.
1: Kidding. Sure. Absolutely. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Whatever, Ed. Okay. So I've
1: lived, right. so- hey, here's the thing, Ed, I have been able to learn from, I've worked with over a hundred, you know, client families through my career, probably more than that. And, each one has their own money hangups, their own money experiences. Our youngest client's 29. Our oldest client's 97. I've seen all the life stages. And there's so much that even at the... the our older clients still have things back when they grew up and the money experiences from when they were 15 that still impact them today. It's The psychology of money is it's always a factor and money's just so emotional. It's very
0: rarely a spreadsheet. It's not just a spreadsheet. Although we go to spreadsheets to manage our emotions. So there is that connection. But that—that that is, I think, why I said this. You, you have the psychology of an 80-year-old. And it's one of the unique positions that financial planners and therapists both get is we work with people across their lifespan. And we both are in positions where you hear people's stories. You hear both the things that they've been very successful at and proud of. And the things that ultimately they would rather tell nobody and probably have told nobody else, but carry some shame or embarrassment. Oh, yeah. Uh, regret. And you're having end of life planning conversations with folks in their 70s, 80s, and 90s. And you're meeting with 29-year-olds who are just building their families and getting kids and the house. And, oh, my God, I got my big boy, big girl job. And what do I do with all of this? Right? And everything right. in between. So, you... While you're living your own life, you're also living kind of vicariously through so many other lives, and that's, I think, where part of the value of financial planning and therapy come to play is we we get to we really truly do get to know the whole life cycle.
1: We have a unique perspective that I can see what a uh, someone who's 65 is struggling with. That I can go and talk to my 35 year old and say okay, we want to put you in the right position, but at the same time, I don't want you to have this problem when you're 65 that you're worried about this piece. And, and one thing that just comes to mind is I think people fall into one or two camps a lot of times. They either are really good savers or they're really good spenders. There's not a lot that are right in the middle. And the <laughs> problem is if you're a really good saver for the first 65 years of your life and then you retire, you don't magically become a good spender and go and spend in retirement. And so what right. can we do, and this is part of just learning with clients, what can we do throughout, you know, preparing for retirement so that you actually start spending your money because that's what it was for.
0: <laughs> well, that's, that's what you and I think, but that, that's part of the psychology too, is what is the purpose or meaning of money, which probably tees us right up for the six stages of financial independence. So what are they at a high level? Absolutely. And then we'll just process into each of the levels.
1: So the six stages of financial independence, and um, I'll just name them all first and we'll dive into them. So the first one is establishing an emergency fund. So step one, emergency fund. Step two is have saved one year worth of expenses. So emergency fund is generally three to six months of expenses. Stage two, you have one year. Stage three, which in some ways could actually come first, between stage two and three, but it's more of a concept, is you have enough money saved that you can access that if you have a horrible boss or you hate your career and you're unfulfilled, you can quit your job and go pursue the job that you really want. And that could be maybe it's you want to be an attorney and you want to go to law school or you, you're not an attorney, but you want to be, if you want to go to law school, you want to switch careers, that's a different number than if you only have, you know, if you're just switching from one specific job to one specific job, that number could change depending on the situation. But so, emergency fund, one year of expenses, number three is quit job, number four is uh, what I like to call lean fire, which is uh, financial independence, retire early is fire. Financial independence is you've got enough money to, to live without making another dollar. Lean financial independence is you can cover your basic expenses. So your lifestyle would have to drop if you never earned another dollar, but you can survive. So okay. that's number four. Number, f- number five is what most financial planners define as financial independence, which is maintain my current lifestyle without earning another paycheck.
0: Right. Yep.
1: And then number six, I like to call true financial independence. And that is now you have enough money that you can go and actually pursue the things that fulfill you. And we can, and that that's uh we'll, we'll talk about that and we'll, you know, we'll let's go back and any questions you have on the steps before we get to six, then we'll focus on number six. Cause that's where most impact and meaning comes from.
0: No, I mean, I think the right are they're, they're pretty conventional from my perspective. So, and I would imagine this is a confluence of your experience, professional training. But what do I want to say? It is a journey. Um, I mean, I, I was thinking about this yesterday is we all start financially dependent on our parents. And then we make this transition into presumably increasing levels of financial independence. And yet, you know, in what I was listening to yesterday, there's large percentage of our population where people will never really become financially independent from their families. That's maybe a whole other conversation. So I don't want to. To go too hard on that, um, but for those that and I'm going to do air quotes want to follow the conventional path, and I know there's some limits to even saying that, but right this is kind of a conventional path to financial independence, and moving through those stages is part of what financial planning helps people figure out how to sort through when you lay this out for clients, what do you notice happen for them
1: well So although it's a conventional path, and I would agree with that, you know, these are numbers, you can put on a spreadsheet, all that. It's very intentional on what they are, because they're all around the emotions or people are feeling if if you're not at that stage. So stage Uh, one is have an emergency fund. Okay, so an emergency fund is important, because if you have no emergency fund, and you have no access to cash, you are constantly afraid of something going wrong. So if we can establish a nice emergency fund, now you don't have to worry about what if my fridge breaks or my car needs to get repaired or whatever that looks like because you've got some money to cover that emergency. So you can't think about, you know, it's kind of like the uh, I'm gonna get this wrong, but what is it, the Mas, Maslow's law of hierarchy of needs? Right? If you can't of focus needs, yeah, on yeah. true financial Yeah, yeah. You can't focus on true financial freedom if you're worried about what's gonna happen. If I get into a fender bender today.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, I think that's where a lot of people unintentionally or intentionally kind of get sideways is they divorce kind of psychological freedom, worrying about money from practical. It's like you have to have practical and psychological financial freedom. And this is the practical side is having money set aside in an emergency fund.
1: Right. Exactly. So, so that's both number one. Number two is one year of expenses. That is if I, you know, we, we in America, we don't have great uh, parental leave policies. We don't have great, um, you know, safety nets for people that get sick for a long period of time, unless you're doing something on your own to prepare for it. If you have one year of expenses covered, then you're going to be in a worse spot financially after a year, but you're not going bankrupt. Because and so most that's important will- psychologically
0: most people can recover within a year's time from a some sort of setback job loss right. or something like that exactly
1: exactly and so if you're like i have clients i have clients that have said i'm you know i'm saving a lot for retirement well that's all tied up in retirement accounts i can't get it till i'm 59 and a half without a penalty and i'm trying to save that but my company has a really bad policy for maternity leave And I'm intending to get pregnant soon. What do I do? How do I plan for that?
0: So pragmatically, how long do you see it take for someone to go from stage one to stage two where they have one year of expenses? Because I'm imagining that's, like if I'm doing the math, you're saving 20% of your income, that's five years before you hit that stage. Uh, What's
1: great is that's only four years. So what's great about a high savings rate is if you're saving 20%, you're only spending 80%. So it only takes four years of saving to save 80% of your income because you Ooh. don't need to cover 100% of your income. You need to s- cover 100% of your
0: expenses, right? Oh, touche. I like the, the... See, this is why Ben's, you know, first a financial planner... And I'm first a therapist, because I
1: didn't quite do all that. <laughs> no, and it's not to call you out, but but it no, is. No, yeah, no, but that's It is the like, power of savings, right? The power of savings is you're not spending.
0: Uh, yes, yes. Well, and I think, you know, this. it's four years for a lot of folks is a long time. Like it just feels like a really long time to be doing towards one goal. What do you When you see people working towards that kind of goal, what do you see happen maybe at year one or two is there something that changes where it actually speeds up and isn't the mathematical four years, but it ends up being two, two and a half years because you have an intention and all of a sudden it's like other ways of having that kind of cash reserve show up? Does that make sense?
1: So, yeah. So, there's a few ways. Um, you know, One, if you're, in a, if you're early in your career and you're getting raises, you're getting promotions, that's really helpful if you, if you have this goal in mind to keep expenses in check because now your savings rate goes up faster because you're saving most of what you earn as extra, you know, avoid the lifestyle creep. Uh, And also just to get to the math for a second, the difference between a 20% savings rate and a 25% savings rate, it's only 5% difference, but it's one year off. It's four years of saving to get, if you're only saving 20% and it's only you're saving, you got three years until you have a whole year. If you're saving 25% and Again, it gets to if you can just tweak that savings percentage, once you hit that exponential threshold in a way, it goes super fast. And so if you can have your income grow, if you're in an income-growing stage of your career, if your income can grow and you keep expenses in check, you can hit those goals really fast.
0: Well, wow. I mean, my my brain is blown right now just thinking about this. and. Through the math of this. And this is what's so fun about these conversations is it always opens up new ways of thinking about things. That the difference between saving 20% and 25% of your income is a whole year towards getting a year's of income set aside. That so just right. listeners slow down and let let that matriculate. Don't don't try to do all the math. Just I I guarantee you can trust Ben on this. Why? Because he stands to make no money off of this particular piece of information. So, like, why would he make anything up? Just teasing Ben a little bit. Um, <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> but, like, you know, like, wow. So, that's so when you see people get to that threshold when they hit one year of expenses saved up, what, ha- so then they're on to the next job. What, what's, what's happening for them at stage three? Quit the job. Right. So,
1: I, I almost think this in life stage, you know, from an ideal perspective, um, it, part of it's a life st- stage of life that you're in. So when you're in your, when you're in your twenties and I'll just say when you're pre kids, <laughs> cause kids mess everything up. We both have kids. So we can say that when you're pre kids, yeah. yes. um, emergency fund and one year savings. If you want to be, okay, am I on track? That should be your goal is get stage one and stage two. And it, just because you're not there and if you're already past that in the stage of life, you're still going to be fine. There's still steps you can take. But ideally, you're going to get there because then it allows step three to matter. And step three is I can quit my job. And from every client that I have, the first time they have a kid, and, and not everyone has kids, but the first, first child rocks their world. And what mattered in their 20s doesn't matter anymore. Or it changed. What's up <laughs>
0: uh-huh. and it's yeah. not
1: necessarily that their kids change, but it gives perspective. It doesn't mean they're going to quit their job. It just means their perspective changed. So, and part of that's just growing and developing and, and maturing and, no, and all normal life cycle that development.
0: Important. Yeah, yeah,
1: exactly. But if you feel financially stuck. That you have to go to work every day, and you every Sunday are dreading waking up the next day, you you hate your life. Because most oh. of your life is spent in an unfulfilling part of your life, right? And it and you know it's not what you want. So having enough money that you can quit your job and pursue whatever it is. Maybe it's you want to start your own business, maybe it's just get out of a horrible boss situation. Maybe it's you want to be, you want to stay home with your kids, whatever that is, those numbers will change, but you have to have the first two steps before you can get to the third one, which is that freedom of I'm not tied to this job. You still are tied to a job because you still need income, but you're not tied to this job. That's freeing and allows for a lot of opportunities.
0: You know, what's landing for me and it's kind of self-evident but i think so many self-evident things need to be stated so that it becomes even more tangible is financial independence as you're laying it out is a progressive journey it's not a a black and white i'm financially i'm not financially independent i am financially independent it's like stages degrees of financial independence is what we're what you're laying out here is that am i picking up what you're putting down
1: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we talk about the six stages of financial independence. It's, it's uh, you know, if you play video games, it's levels. You got to, you know, you got to grow and develop and you start small, but you've achieved something. And that's great. And recognize that because I think a lot of people like I'm either financially independent, meaning I can retire, or I'm not. It, you're growing, right. you're developing, you have positive steps along the way
0: you have, degree, if your retirement accounts are growing and you're building towards that, you know, lean fire phase, like you're more financially independent than you were in the earlier seasons of life. Right. You may For not sure. be For fully sure. where you want to be, but you're not, you're not, you're further away from being financially dependent on mom and dad or other social support systems. Exactly. Okay. So then lean fire and I imagine some folks in this that are listening to this podcast are familiar with kind of the fire movement. But for those that are not, can you lean into a oh, play on words? For sure. Lean into the lean fire.
1: <laughs> yes. That's right. So, um, quick kind of summary of the fire movement. Fire movement started uh, really coming out of the Great Recession, 2008, 2009 ish is when it really became a, a term and really started in blogs. And financial. FIRE stands for Financial Independence. Retire early. So it's an acronym. And it was a lot of it was actually, I think, people that were step three, which is they hated their job were unfulfilled and didn't know what to do. And so they they were looking for a way out. And so this FIRE term came into be. The problem that I see, just quick sidebar here, is just a lot of it's built on. Well, you have to cut everything. That's the only answer. You cut out all all the extra. And so right. the way you achieve this number is by cutting expenses as low as possible. And that turned into people retired. And it was the only way this, the money worked to be financially dependent that you never worked again was you sold your house. You lived in a tent. You had very little expenses. You didn't enjoy Things in life that you used to enjoy before, and that works for some people, it doesn't work for the majority of people I have found. But there still is something freeing of knowing, okay, maybe I can't maintain my current lifestyle, but if I couldn't work again for whatever reason, I would be okay. I wouldn't love it, but I'd be okay. If that's really what the Lean Fire is talking about, is if you cut expenses to the bare bones, could you be fine if you never earned more money? That's a great first step.
0: Yeah, it is. And, I, you know, I think I appreciate you saying, like, it's okay and it's aspirational if you want to do that. And at the same token, it's probably not the thing that most people want to do is slash and burn. And I think that's what gets people a lot of fear about talking with financial planners is they're just going to tell me to slash and burn my lifestyle. And that just, for most of us, psychologically doesn't work. And, you know, the phrase I use is you become a financial anorexic Because you learn how to live this very restricted life, but you kind of lose pleasure and the meaning, right? Hundred percent food dash money. And and I don't say that lightly and in light of eating disorders, because those are profound mental health issues. And at the same time, I would say I have worked with financial anorexics and it is psychologically very devastating, relationally very devastating as well. So, you know, this is kind of yeah, this is a big, big stuff to to think through, um, and implications. But it, in that phase of like knowing, like, okay, I do now have this part, and I was just doing kind of the mental math on the back, in the mental napkin, van as I was thinking about, it. I was like, oh yeah, lean fire. I feel like yeah, if my wife and I sold our current house, took the equity, went back into a more affordable house, and made a few other changes, like we could probably live into that. Like, oh, okay, just. Something mental thought exercise I hadn't fully worked right. through.
1: And and for a lot of people that, that exercise, when they, when they know they have that number, they're not fulfilled. They're not excited about it, but it's also, it's just, they're at peace because they're not as reliant on other anything, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. It's, it's, it is kind of, I guess, even as a, this, as an exercise, right. Just taking time to reflect and say, oh, I'm there. Seeing like, oh, how much further I've come along that journey because I can remember building the emergency fund. I personally have never gone to a year of lived expenses. I don't think that I will. Um, that's, we you know, whatever. That's okay. Um, but thinking about lean firing, like, it, it's a different way of thinking about, oh, this is my household net worth. But I think about it in terms of what it would take for us to live our current life now and know that's not where it needs to be. Yep. But that that's the stage five. And so that's step five. Right. Right.
1: Okay. Yeah. Stage five is, is traditional financial independence as most financial planners define it. And that is you maintain your current lifestyle. Don't save any more. Don't make any more income. You completely quit your job and you have built enough of a nest egg that it's going to last a reasonable rest of your life.
0: High probability that you won't run out of money early. Correct. Yes.
1: Now I don't have a single client that when they hit that number, they stop working. And I say that because uh it's a psychology of I don't want to be one dollar over where you say I'm financially independent because I always <laughs> worry of what if I forgot about it, you know, two dollars. And so right. um, yeah, right, right. most yeah. people build some margin of safety there. <laughs>
0: Yes. Well, I mean, which is a whole other big psychological concept around money is like that margin of safety, how much is enough, which you talked about at the very beginning. And, you know, I think if you're doing this journey and you're reflective, hopefully you feel a sense of financial safety kind of developing all the way along. Right. Like, I think that's another thing is people kind of like consciously and unconsciously say, I'll feel financially safe when I'm financially independent. That's a long time for most mm-hmm. of us to wait to feel financially secure and safe. And so, that, that feeling of feeling right. financially safe um, is a totally different junket. I mean, that's a, a whole different podcast episode. Maybe that, we just got an idea.
1: Right. And t- until, you get, until you get part six, you know, stage six of true financial freedom, everyone has some anxiety around money. And all we're trying to lay out is a framework that helps you kind of chip away that anxiety a little bit and you're never going to be 100% at peace. Uh, And even if you achieve step six, you're still probably going to feel a little bit for most people. But if you can get rid of some of that anxiety, that's huge for just your quality of life.
0: And I really appreciate you naming that, too, because I think so often as financial planners, we paint this picture that once you achieve your financial goals, you'll be free of anxiety and worry. And what you can say from your years of experience and working with over 100 family households is even your clients that are most financially independent are not completely free of financial anxiety. Is that fair to say?
1: No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, Ed, it's, are you I, kidding? I like I'm Every single client. Yeah, that just doesn't happen. <laughs> it's, you've always got something, and there's always and the news. The news is built to make you be anxious. Like, let's just be really clear: That headlines sell because they make you scared. And so, I can't tell you the number of times that financial independent clients that if I ask them, "Are you worried about money?" They'd say, "No, I'm not worried about money." And then they send me an email with a link to an article and says, "Should we be worried about this?" and that doesn't mean they're worried. It just means they're aware something could go wrong and want to make sure we're not missing something, even though the conversation's the same every single time. Yes, you're going to be okay.
0: You know, the fear center of our brains is just such a funny thing, right? Because we don't maintain a perfect state of safety and all kinds of things can come across our radar that evoke that sense of fear. And then being able to to reach out and say, like, wait, is this something I should be afraid of? Or not, and that's you have know, kind of the <laughs> uh, the job of the financial planner is to sip through what do we actually need to be concerned about or not concerned about to some degree. like the hope is that we have a bigger perspective on things, but let's be honest as financial planners we still have our own anxieties about what will work out or not work out in the long run. at least I know I do. right.
1: No, but I, I do feel you know I've told clients this my job is to be your financial filter. And so filter out all the noise and tell you these are the, you know, three things to actually focus on. Forget the other
0: 1 million things you're going to read. Yeah. I mean, there's as a financial information creator and provider, I'm part of the problem and the solution, I hope, but more of the solution, than the
1: problem, but yes,
0: (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. But I want to remain self-reflective and realize like, you know, there might be some unintended consequences, Uh, But there is, there is just a pantheon of financial information. And I think the the other thing is having frameworks kind of help reduce the processing load of financial information. And really, this is the journey that most of us want, many of us most want to travel is towards a sense of true financial independence. So the clients that you see that have arrived at that place, what do you notice is different about them on the whole?
1: yeah fi- financial independence most people get to st- that we work with get to stage 5 which is financial independence they can quit their job i wouldn't say it's the majority get to to stage 6 and that's fine and that's there's nothing no, nothing wrong with that but stage 6 is what i call true financial f- freedom and both stage 5 and stage 6 when you get to that point you know you don't have to earn any more money the just the word that comes to mind is just being at peace. You're at peace with your finances, um, and you have a, a mature relationship with your finances that you understand what they can do, but you also understand what they can't do. They can't buy happiness, but they can get rid of anxiety, right? And they can they can help uh, make life a little bit easier, and you use it for what you want. True financial independence, as I've seen it for our clients, are the people that get to the point that they change their life They use their money to change their life. So whether that's the client that lives in the Chicago area where I am, and they move to Southern California where it is twice as expensive, but because their grandchildren live there, that is a higher lifestyle. It's more money that it takes, but it is true freedom to live the life the way that they want to and not be stuck in the box of whatever they've currently lived in. Um, Or it's somebody that takes a year off and goes – on a mission to Africa to do something to help build clean water systems, because that's what they are good at and what they want to do. And they want to provide for people. Those are true financial. That's true financial independence of not letting money hold you back and not having, and more importantly, not having money even be much of a factor. And that's huge. If you can just eliminate that piece.
0: So I wonder, right, like, Hmm. I don't know. Let's see. Like I, I see that coming at that last stage, but I think like, I, and I know. I'm glad that I w- haven't deferred other meaning-based projects prior to getting to that place. So what's that balance of like, as you're on this financial journey, being able to do meaningful life experiences, meaningful life contributions, right? It's because I don't think you're promoting like basically put off all meaningful things until you hit this true financial independence which I think is where some people kind of get too overly focused. Um,
1: Absolutely. Right. Like I I think most people, most people need to actually spend the time to figure out what that will look like and then how to incorporate that today. So if for instance, you want to spend time with your grandchildren don't wait until you're truly financially independent to do it let's take steps today to have you spend some money now and maybe put off that step 6 of true financial freedom but make your life more fulfilling today and recognizing that this is you know if if we look at your life as you know we want to maximize your fulfillness fulfillment for your life if that's like a an overarching theme we can do it in one of two ways. You can, or three ways you can maximize it today and have no fulfillment in the future. Cause you're worried about money forever. You can push it all off to when you're retired. And then we don't know how long you're going to live and how long you can have that. Or we can have kind of a, a nice fulfillment for your whole life and take steps. That maybe don't cost as much, but do it now. So you've got some now and, and put off some. So there's a balance there. And I think most people fall on the poles, right? They, they put it off or they do it all today and try to get people to kind of go in the middle.
0: So that, that's really kind of one of your big emphasis when you're working with clients then is to help them find some middle balance between these polarities of putting it all off for the future or living for today. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, You know, which is, you know, I think from the therapy world, that's a big part of what we're looking at is the polarization is the word we use in therapy world. And, when people are polarized, we kind of often think about how do we help them find the other side and the middle, right? Like almost, yeah, how do I, yeah, just as it's downloading, I think about like thinking about my own life and how like I've been on kind of both ends of the polarity of so focused on the future that screw today, like I'm just going to work my tail off. And then I have had a season of life where it's like, who cares about the future? I'm just living for today, which felt wildly irresponsible for a period of time. It was also fun, and now it's kind of like... So, so what were you?
1: What were you feeling in the second one? What were you feeling when you said, like, what caused you to say, "Screw the future"? Like, let's just
0: enjoy today. Oh, there's a lot there. That's a that's a turning the tables on me, asking me a good therapy question here, uh, but. I <laughs> You know, I think part of it was, it was, there's a start of kind of, we're going to have kids soon. I want to do this uh, volunteer project for microfinance. My wife is making enough money. So there's also this back side of the story is like, I don't have to worry about making money because she's making money. So that, <laughs> yep. that was, yeah, I'm not, you know, honey, if you listen to this one, like, yeah, I know we've talked about it. We'll keep talking about it. Like, this is, so, for me, there was a spiritual angle too about what I thought I was understanding about who God was and what God was calling me to in that particular season of life, um, and what I thought that represented. And so, I think there's a number of factors that sent me into that period or season of life. But you know, now it's hopefully in this middle season of life, recognizing there's there's a balance and a and a healthy tension between. Saving for the future, planning for the future, living in the present, and you know, reflecting and learning from the past. So, eh.
1: I'm I'm not going to completely let, let you off the hook though, and ask you another follow-up question. So, uh, w- when you you said there, that you felt maybe after the fact it was very irresponsible. Who who were you? Who was it irresponsible to, or who was
0: making you feel that way? <laughs> Yeah, you know, that's, wow, man. Are you sure you're not also a therapist? Um, I I've always wanted <laughs> to be a little bit of one, so. <laughs> well, you know, as, as so many planners say, I feel like I'm part therapist without the training. So, um, you know, the part of being, and I think, look, asking people really good questions is therapeutic and it's not reserved for therapists to be able to do. So um, as I dance away from your question, uh, trying to avoid it because it made me really uncomfortable. But that, and I'm okay <laughs> with that. To be vulnerable, like no. come on. <laughs> well, you know, I'm being vulnerable. I'm honest. Like I'm dancing away because it made me uncomfortable. But uh, I think the I've had a strong internal sense of high responsibility for myself and for others, um, starting in my childhood and in coming through my young adulthood. You know having worked as a firefighter, there's, you know, I'm the oldest child in my siblings set, So I think oftentimes there's some baked in natural hyper-responsibility there. Right, um,
1: right there with you.
0: I think there's, you know, for me, there's some childhood trauma things that, you know, baked into all of that. And so, and again, I don't want to split responsibility into all good or all bad. It just had become so extreme for me that I, part of the counterbalancing was going to the other side of just kind of throwing all the shackles off and taking no responsibility for, uh, and, and look, other people that look at my life and say, well, yeah, but you were doing this and this. And it's like, yeah, there's, there's still some extremes in that. So responsibility. Well, yeah, that's a whole nother podcast episode to, to open up, but. Um,
1: well, and, and part of, and part of why I took us there too, just is we talked about, I think on the last, you know, the first time I was on, uh, we talked about yeah, shame yeah. around money decisions and avoiding oh, some of that yeah. stuff. And, and, and so one thing that I just, I think is important when I hear things like that from you or from a client or whatever else is, okay, you live that season of your life. Who, number one, you know, kind of name, who was the one that you're, you feel like you let down? Was it you? Uh, was it your parents? Is it oh, your past yeah, self? Me. Is it whatever else? Right. Oh, but oh, also... yeah. So let
0: me just name that. It's it's me and my wife. Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. I feel like I, I feel like I let myself down. I feel like I let, let my wife down. In some ways, I probably feel like I let my kids down. Um, yeah. My, this is actually Ben. I'm glad you you asked this, and I'm, yeah. Just this was a piece of like me doing a little bit of my own work, and and I, I exactly what you're doing is what I try to do with my clients. Is working through that shame of past financial decisions and who did you let down? That's, that's big. You see that all the time.
1: So, and I think everyone's got something in your life. Everyone has a period of time. It doesn't matter if it's spending. Is it over saving? Is it avoiding going to something that you really wanted to do? Cause you didn't want to spend the money, whatever it is. There are points. Money's emotional. We're all flawed individuals. We all make mistakes. <laughs> yeah. We, but we have to, to have true freedom. We got to let that go right?
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, the practice of um, self-compassion and self-acceptance, self-forgiveness, like all of those pieces are big. And yet I think the other side of it is, it's not just, I think it's the, an individual responsibility and a communal responsibility. And so like you talking and asking me these questions of the communal side of like, you're hearing a fellow human and a friend with that suffering that I almost can't hear for myself. Cause it's so familiar that, but it like, Clearly comes across to you like, well, Ed's still kind of beating himself up. You can sense that. And so you're just saying, like, hey, whoa, who, who did you let down here, dude? Like, I'm not judging you. I'm just curious. And can we like let go of that some? So.
1: Next time we can uh, we can dive into me. I can open up about my past, you know, money mistakes. <laughs>
0: Whatever you want to do. Yeah. <laughs> but this is fun as always. <laughs> oh man. Oh, Thank you for your kindness, generosity, and the work that you do in the world. And uh, we'll be in, we'll have you back for sure. Sounds good. Thanks, Ed. I invite you now to stop for five or ten minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money. Ed.